all these things came to light. I realized that I loved cooking. I loved cooking with cannabis. I was obsessed with taking out the taste of cannabis. So all those things in my mind were like, all right, it's time. Like, you should be a cannabis chef. And that was the universe telling me that it's really time to pivot and move on to what I'm supposed to be doing. And I love, love, love what I'm doing now. I mean, it's like, I don't have any trepidation when it comes to it. I'm obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with creating new products in this space. So it's something that I think is really me finally heeding the call. And it took me almost 50 years to figure that out, but I got it. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. Ever since I was a child, I was curious about so many things. I spent hours in the garage at science fairs, sifting through popular science, popular mechanics, and pretty much any journal I could get my hands on, exploring and discovering how things work. From transportation and AI to just about anything you can put in your home, office, or pocket. On this show, you'll hear from the innovators themselves as they tell their stories of how they brought those visions to life. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. The history of gastronomy is filled with accidental discoveries. The potato chip was invented when a New York chef got frustrated with a customer who kept sending back orders of fried potatoes for being too thick. Before sending out the last batch, the chef cut them as thinly as he could before frying them in oil. The customer loved them and the potato chip was born. Beer came about when ancient Egyptians realized the grains they were storing for bread had become damp and started to ferment. And Coca-Cola was originally meant to be a tonic to help its inventor, John Pemberton, kick his morphine addiction. The point is that throughout history, chefs and home cooks alike have stumbled upon what would later become as common as a bag of chips and a nice cold beer. My guest today is not one of those chefs. Jeff Danzer, a.k.a. Jeff the 420 Chef, is the man behind one of the most important culinary advancements in a generation. And it was hardly an accident. Jeff isn't a trained chef, or at least he wasn't when he started out trying to infuse cannabis into restaurant-quality dishes. No, he was a marketing executive in the fashion industry who was both an avid home cook and a cannabis enthusiast. His life changed forever when he made his famous pot brownies for a relative who was suffering from terminal cancer. The relative loved how the brownies made him feel, but he hated how they tasted. That experience drove Jeff to learn everything he could about the science of cannabis. For nearly two years, he studied everything he could about what was in cannabis and what he could remove from it. His discovery was the beginning of a whole new era for both the food industry and the exploding cannabis economy. It didn't make sense to me that no matter what strain I used, which had a different odor and a different taste when smoked, 
why was the taste always the same when I ate it? I realized that there are certain compounds in the plant and those compounds were causing the taste. But why was the taste always the same? Well, I found out that those compounds are very volatile and they burn off very easily. So when you're burning something off, you're going to have a residual taste to that burn. So imagine toast. If you're burning toast, it doesn't matter if it's white bread, pumpernickel, or rye. The black part of the toast will always taste the same. It will taste like burnt toast, right? It doesn't matter what the underlying flavor is supposed to be, right? So the same sort of thing when it comes to cannabis, where the terpenes, the chlorophyll, and the flavonoids all have a very unique taste to them. But when you burn them off, they leave behind this taste, this very herbaceous taste, and that is the taste that you taste in your edibles. The only taste that I've come to learn that is indigenous kind of to the trichome is like kind of like a slight bitterness. And it's not so bitter that you, you would even taste it if you process it right. So I realized that if there's a way for me to remove those certain compounds from the plant, but keep the trichome intact so that it had the THC and CBD still there, then I would have make a much better tasting edible. And that's exactly what I did. Remember, Jeff was not a trained chef. He wasn't a biologist. He wasn't a chemist. In fact, he had never once thought about cooking or science as a profession. Jeff grew up in a modern Orthodox Jewish community in Los Angeles. His father worked for the VA and his mother owned a marketing company. And Jeff was the oldest of their four sons. The family was close, but while food was always a big part of their culture, cannabis, well, let's say, was not. At least not outwardly. Cannabis at the time was very secretive. The kids were doing it, but the parents didn't know, but the parents were probably doing it as well. But no one really talked about it. But yeah, I grew up in a really cool neighborhood in LA. How far from that community do you live now? So I go back and forth to that community all the time because my parents live there. I don't live too far away, and I also live in San Diego, so I'm going back and forth. And what was the vibe like growing up? You said Orthodox, but in terms of what was the social stigma and kind of the vibe? I mean, were you, um, you know, an 80s kid or 90s kid? Oh, yeah, I was an 80s kid. I graduated high school in 1980. So I was really like a late 70s, you know, early 80s kid. I would say it was like 1978 was the first time that I smoked weed at all. A bunch of my friends got together. We went out to some seminar actually in New York. Someone had some weed there. We went to the back area in the forest and we ended up smoking and sitting on a log for about six hours and just having a great time. And uh, I fell in love with it then, came back and like we just became smokers. We would go on trips. We would go down to Arizona. We go to San Diego. We go everywhere and just like smoking on the beach. And it was like we were like those beach stoner type kids, but we were still living in the Orthodox Jewish community. So, you know, we had like a dual life kind of. So tell me a little bit more about your family. What was your home life like? Yeah, it's funny. At the time, my family was very anti-cannabis. Modern Orthodox, so they weren't, you know, overly zealous with you know, regards to the religion. You know, in that community, it was very closed off. We didn't have a lot of access to a lot of things outside of our community. So it was very insular. And the kids, as rebels, as we typically always are, we would go out and rebel. And one of the things we loved to do was either drink or smoke. I wasn't really much of a drinker. I've never been much of a drinker, but I love smoking. We would always hang out at someone's apartment and smoke or, you know, someone's backyard to smoke or go on a trip somewhere and smoke. It was just one of the fun things we used to love to do as part of our recreational time. Did you go to a Jewish high school or Jewish schools? 
I did until 11th grade, 11th and 12th grade. I ended up going to public school, which was a total eye opener. I used to wear my yarmulke in school. I mean, that's how religious I was in a public school that was heavily um, minority. And I became, quote unquote, that token Jew, like token Jew, <laughs> because we would just go out and smoke with everybody. And we had the best time, you know, it was pretty awesome. And back then, you could just do what you wanted. I mean, even though it was illegal, you had to be really careful what you did. We pretty much did whatever we wanted. We really didn't care. Your home life, you said cannabis wasn't acceptable. Was alcohol? Yeah. In the Jewish culture specifically, alcohol is a big part of that culture. I mean, you drink wine every Friday night. You go out to uh, an event. It's called a kiddish, and everyone's drinking, gets shots here and there of, you know, whether it's whiskey or <laughs> whatever it is. And, you know, there's another part of the religion that loves vodka. It's pretty interesting. And uh, so alcohol was always a big part of it, but I just wasn't into it. It always bothered me, bothered my stomach, didn't make me feel right. So when people were busy drinking, I was busy getting high. But never on a Saturday back then because we were religious and you couldn't really smoke on Saturday and edibles were not even a real thing when I was in high school. Right. Shishi Shabbat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Having spent time in Israel, one of the things that I personally loved was all the great food. Yes. So what was the cooking like in your family and how did that influence you? Uh, my mother was a great cook. And when she couldn't cook, I used to love to cook. And she actually taught me how to cook. When I was five or six years old, she bought me my first cookbook called The Kids Cookbook. And they teach you how to make like stuffed celery and French toast and cinnamon toast and all the really easy stuff, bread pizza. I used to do that all for myself. And then, you know, when my mom she was too busy working and couldn't make something, I would learn how to make certain things for a Shabbat meal. And I would learn how to make dinner and I would be able to make a dinner for the family. So I started cooking really early, but I didn't become a chef until many, many, many years later. And would you cook for them too? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, everyone loved my food, but we all cooked. We all learned to cook. We were all trying to outdo each other and stuff. And it was always just eating well. We just loved to eat well. Is there a favorite smell or like a spice or ingredient that reminds you of your childhood? Fresh baked challah. <laughs> that I would say reminds me. And, you know, obviously, you know, the, the Jewish food that we have specifically on, you know, Friday night and Shabbat, there's a very specific, really homey smell to them from fresh baked challahs the kugels and all the other things that we would make. So yeah, there's a very unique smell that comes to Shabbat. And that's something that I think is always going to be unique to me. Nice. So you're in high school, public school. What's next? What do you do after high school? So after high school, I decided I'm going to move to New York. And I went to Yeshiva University, applied to a you know, Jewish university, ended up going to both Yeshiva University and Toro College. So two Jewish schools. My father forbade me to go to a regular public college, even though I wanted to. He really wanted me to be in a Jewish environment. So that's what I did. In between those, Yeshiva University and Toro College, I went to Israel for about a year and a half, spent a year and a half just tooling around, going to school there and having a great time and just becoming an individual person, independent of my family and everything else and making my friends group. And like everybody does at that age, you know, you grow up and you all of a sudden get out into the world and you start realizing that there's this much grander world out there. Mine happened to be Israel. And then when I came back from Israel, the world opened up further when I moved to New York City as an adult after school. And when you went to Israel, was that a kibbutz or was that to be in the military? Or? So yeah, I started on a kibbutz. I started uh, milking cows on a kibbutz. Did that for about six months. And I ended up going to yeshiva out there, which is an Orthodox Jewish school. And it's typically the trajectory that most Jewish kids will take. When they finish high school, between high school and college, they go to Israel for a year. So I ended up going to 
having a year in New York first and then going to Israel and then coming back to New York. So it's a very different lifestyle. For lack of a better word, I would say that it's something that is typical within that community. That's typically the way that Orthodox Jewish kids do it. Yeah, I used to take the Shishi Shabbat shuttle to Tel Aviv uh-huh. or to Haifa for work. <laughs> and I was living in New York and I would be the only one that was an Orthodox on the plane sometimes, but it was just such a beautiful, colorful culture. And I could smell all the food on the plane. And I was just like, oh. <laughs> yeah, people always bringing food to each other. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd make friends. It was great. So how did that experience influence you? And then where did you go with that knowledge next? Did you come back to the United States? Yeah, I tell you, that experience was just like the most freeing experience in my life. I was on my own. We would do whatever we wanted. I also played piano. I've been playing piano since I'm eight years old. And I brought with me to Israel this really cool portable electric piano. We would go everywhere with it. Me and my friends literally would travel to Israel making money with my piano. Like I would sit there in the city square. I would play piano and sing. People would give us money and then we'd go to the next place. So we ended up going from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv to a lot, to all these different places around Israel, just based on me playing piano. You know, and it was a lot of fun. It was it paid enough for me and three friends to just travel throughout Israel when we had our free time. That's amazing. What kind of music do you play? I play almost anything, but I like to compose. And the music I'm composing now is more like epic movie score type music. So the music you would hear in the background of a movie or to lead off a movie or as a score, I'm just enjoying that. That's my, my, my biggest hobby. Maybe we need to get you to write a score for the podcast. <laughs> Maybe. That would but be they're, cool. they're really epic. <laughs> I love it. So you leave Israel, you come back to the U.S. Is this where your fashion career starts? Well, not really. So kind of. I come back to New York. I ended up, you know, obviously searching for something. But at that age, you don't know what you want to do. And at first I was a hand hunter. I figured what better way to figure out what kind of jobs are out there than to help other people find jobs and see what people are looking for. So I became a headhunter, did that for about two years until I found a job that I thought could be pretty awesome. At the time, I was dating women and I had an amazing girlfriend who ended up becoming my wife. And I figured I would do something that would maybe get her some jewelry. So I went into the jewelry business, (laughs) ended up working for a pearl company, becoming vice president of marketing for that pearl company. She got tons of pearls out of it. You know, then as my kids were born and they got older, I started working for toy companies and licensing companies and started getting stuff for them. And that was just, I would just do things because I loved just the marketing aspect of it, but I wanted to be able to bring something back, right? Bring something to my family and I wanted them to benefit from what I was doing. So I got into that. And then at some point in time, I just decided that I needed to find something that I really enjoyed for myself. And I started getting into fashion. And it was one thing led to the next until I got into that fashion business, but I ended up working with a company called Two Exist Underwear. And Two Exist Underwear is a men's underwear brand that took over a lot of space from Calvin Klein. When I got there, they were a very small business, but I literally jumped into that head first, feet first. The founder of the company and I really built that company from like a $2 million company to $30 million over about a six-year period. And then I really became like that adult. I ended up getting married I had three kids that ended up spending about 30 years in the fashion industry, specifically in the underwear realm, so to speak. And then from there, I needed a little more adventure. So I started working for a base layer company, which is the underwear that you would wear in extreme environments like Mount Everest. So I climb Mount Everest, you know, and what I would do is I would hire where we would sponsor athletes for whatever we did to promote our business. So for example, the underwear business, we sponsored Jason Seahorn. He ended up becoming one of it. He was a football player who played for the uh, New York Giants. 
And he ended up becoming like the poster boy for True Exist Underwear and really helped us get that way into the stratosphere. You know, on the other side of it, when I was working in the base layer business, we sponsored people like Eric Larson, who did Mount Everest and the Arctic and the South Pole, in North and South Pole, all in one year to bring awareness to global warming, right? I went with him to Mount Everest. I climbed up the second, you know, to the base camp and then the second base camp while he ended up summiting. So that was an incredible experience. And then with him, I also did other adventures because I wanted to experience new things in the world, not just my job. I ended up camping out in the Arctic with him in Churchill, you know, which is an, an incredible thing with polar bears and northern lights and, you know, being in like, you know, minus 30 degrees in a tent with like five other people. But I was on that trip. I was the cook. And I cooked for everybody and we had a great time and everyone, and I was like, wow, people love my food. They love what I do. I wasn't cooking with cannabis. It was just cooking. And they invited me to come back again to cook on other trips. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And I really started realizing that cooking was something that I had a passion for that maybe I could do something with. Wow. Did you ever think about going to culinary school? Never. It was not even a thing. It was, I love cooking. I cook for friends. I cook for family. I love doing that stuff. I was always the guy at the barbecue behind the barbecue. I love that stuff, but I never considered it as a career. I didn't even consider it until the day before I considered it. I mean, literally, I was trying to figure out for myself what I want to do. I was done with fashion. I was burnt out of it. I pretty much accomplished everything that I could, I thought, in the fashion you know, industry at that point. And I'm like, God, what am I supposed to do? So now you're an adult, you're a family man, and is cannabis still part of your life? Yeah, I was always a smoker. I would always prefer to smoke instead of drink for my friends to go out and drink. You know, it just became part of my lifestyle. I loved weed. I would even make my own edibles on the side just for me and, and my friends. We would just make brownies and cookies. There was nothing else more to it, except for I also became known for, I don't know if you know what a cholent is, but what that is, is it's uh, kind of like a Jewish chili that people eat on Saturday. And I used to make an infused cholent. Basically, I would just take the weed. And I did not know what I was doing at the time, but I would stick it into the crock pot with all the beans and the meat and the barley and everything else that goes into it. And the next day, just serve it. And we'd all have a wonderful day because we were all super high from it. So it was, it was pretty interesting how that worked. And I didn't understand the science behind it until, you know, like I would say 15 years ago. But just knowing, you know, that we were doing that then was pretty awesome. I've always been cooking with cannabis, I can say, since I started cooking as an adult. So let's talk a little bit about the pivot. So my understanding, there's a family member who was ill. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So there was a family member that was suffering from terminal brain cancer. He didn't want to smoke. He wanted to medicate, but he hated the taste of the weed and edibles. Started out making him brownies. My kid's stepbrother. And he told my son that I can't eat this. I, I can't, I hate the taste. You guys got to figure out a way to take out the taste. So we figured out a way to remove the taste. It took me about 18 months to do it. Unfortunately, he never got a chance to try it. But that one comment was the catalyst for me to figure out how to remove the odor and taste of the weed from our edible so that only the food shined and the taste of the cannabis did not overpower the taste of the food. That actually led to the discovery of the odorless and tasteless cannabis that we now have today. So let's go back to that kitchen. This is your home kitchen that you're doing. It's not a commercial kitchen, your home kitchen. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
take us back into that scenario of was this after work or was this like your life became I'm going to get the secret recipe I'm going to master this it was it like a little like Julia and Julia the movie yeah <laughs> <laughs> but she's trying to master the cookbook was that you trying to master this yeah 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 it's funny you know they they, they call me the Julia child of the weed you know Daily Beast did a whole story they were the first ones to break out the fact that I actually was able to remove the odor and taste of the cannabis from my can of butter or can of oil you know why made my edible. And I became obsessed because I really wanted to give them something that tasted really good. And I would go through these different processes and try to figure out what it was that was causing that taste. Because I couldn't imagine that the medicine, which is how it's in the trichome, would have this terrible taste to it. It does have a little bit of a taste to it, almost like a bitter taste, but that's just the taste of the trichome per se. But the other taste, that weedy taste that is always consistent throughout edibles, it's always the same taste. So how did you remove it? I came up with a bud washing process. So the same way that you would have to wash your fruits and vegetables, you should wash your weed before you consume it. Because anything that's in there, any contaminant that's in the flour is going to go into your butter oil and then into your body. So in addition to those compounds that I told you about, there's also potential surface contaminants that will also cause taste. For example, insecticidal soap. So a lot of growers will use insecticidal soap that's organic, and that way they're not tested for insecticides or pesticides, right? But it'll keep most of the pests at bay. Well, how do you remove that? So I figured out that if you soak your cannabis for a few days, you're leaching out the chlorophyll, you're allowing the terpenes and the flavonoids to also come out into that water. We use a distilled water with a perfect pH of seven, right? And we pull out or draw out as much of the flavor as we possibly can. But it still wasn't enough. There was still a residual terpene left over that was going to also impart a taste. So then I realized that, you know, the terpenes in oil is really hard to get oil and water. They don't kind of mix, right? So the oil is always going to stay there unless you have a way to soften it, which is boiling it. So I figured out blanching the cannabis would be a great way to finish the process and remove as many of the terpenes, chlorophyll, and flavonoids as we could to really make a much better tasting can of butter or can of oil once infused. Now, the process doesn't remove all the compounds. That's a secret pending process that I have. But I do teach people how to remove the majority of these compounds so that you'll be able to have a much better tasting can of butter or can of oil when you're infusing your food. So you're really progressive. What year was this that you started that you're just obsessed for 18 months? Yeah. So I was obsessed. I was obsessed with trying to figure out how to take out that taste. And we finally did. So that was 20, I started 2012. And 2014 is when I made a batch of cupcakes. And there was no cannabis taste in it. I had literally figured out pretty much as close to my patent pending process. There's about six more steps that I added to the process to really make it so that there's like zero odor and taste to it. But at the time I made a can of oil that was virtually tasteless. Made a batch of cupcakes. I ended up eating one of those cupcakes. And all of a sudden, I find myself at two o'clock in the morning in my pajamas and flip-flops at Dwayne Reed, which is like a CVS in New York on Wall Street in the snack aisle, wondering why am I here and what am I doing here and what did I want to get? And I realized I was super high. Like I was really high. So next day, I called my best friend. I said, his name is Brian. He owns a um, big media agency in New York called BMS. And I said, Brian, I figured out how to take out the taste of weed, but it's high. 
he's like, all right, I don't got time for you right now, but call my friend Justin at the Daily Beast and he's doing something on cannabis. Maybe he'll be interested in what you're doing. So I called Justin. Justin and I end up having brunch, you know, the next day. I bring him a cupcake, have a great conversation. He said, you know, your story is pretty compelling. I'd like to write an article about you. I said, well, try the cupcake first and let me know how you like it before I write the article. He said, no. He said, I'll let you know how I like the cupcake in the article. So I said, oh, okay, I got nothing to lose. No one knew who I was. Nobody knew cannabis chefs weren't even a thing then. And seven days later, the article comes out and it's meet the Julia Childhood. And he did not taste any cannabis in the cupcake. It got him very pleasantly high. And he talked about it in the article. And from there, Newsweek found out about it. They did, I think, like a four-page story in their Weed 2.0 issue on me. And all of a sudden, I get a cookbook offer from HarperCollins. And literally, all those things combined told me, Jeff, it's time to leave New York, go to California, and literally become a cannabis chef. Well, baking in general is hard to do. (laughs) So the fact that you're actually taking a core ingredient and then amplifying it to perfection to make the impact that you wanted in your perfect cupcake, it's not an easy thing to do. Now you quit your job and you moved to California. Yeah. So I didn't only have a job job. I had a company. (laughs) So I had started my own marketing company towards the end of that time doing marketing for underwear companies. I was doing a base layer company. That's the one that took me to Everest. But it was my company. So I basically just, you know, shuttered it and moved to LA and started doing what I do best. And the cool thing is that throughout the process, as soon as the Newsweek article came out, I started getting Facebook requests from some very well-known chefs in New York and in California and in Colorado, asking me to teach them how to make this quote-unquote, light-tasting can of butter or can of oil. And I did. And in return, what they do is they taught me skills. And they taught me some amazing skills. One very famous chef taught me how to tell the difference between farmed and fresh salmon, which is pretty interesting. If uh, farmed salmon smells like your grandmother's musty basement, and fresh salmon, that's uh, wild-caught salmon, smells really nice and fresh, and it sounds it smells like it came from the ocean. And there's a lot of things, you know, that you learn. And I learned how to make amazing scrambled eggs from another really well-known chef. So all these chefs out there were teaching me different techniques and skills that I now employ in what I'm doing. And ultimately, I became an award-winning cannabis chef. (laughs) So it's kind of interesting with the right tools and the skills. And if you know what you're doing in the kitchen, you can do some great things. That's amazing because you're working in tandem with the best, but you're creating a whole new category on your own that they needed to catch up to. Yeah, yeah. And as I'll tell you something, you know, one of those chefs at the time was the one who actually told me to own the title chef. Because we were across the kitchen and he said, chef. And I said, do you say chef or Jeff? He said, chef. I said, but I'm not really a chef. He said, no, you are. He said, you're an amazing cook. You have taught chefs like me how to do something in the kitchen that nobody else knows. Rooted in molecular gastronomy, which is basically what I really ended up starting to hone everything that I do in. And he said, you are a very good chef. Doesn't matter if you went to culinary school or if you learned from other chefs like me, at the end of the day, you are a very good chef. And I took that to heart. And that's when I started to really own the Jeff the 420 Chef title. I'm curious, when you were in high school, did you like chemistry or what was your favorite subject? I loved chemistry, but it wasn't my favorite subject because of all the math and everything behind it. I just wasn't really into it. Now I'll tell you, I mean, math for what I do is very important. I mean, I just launched uh, not too long ago the THC calculator, which is free on Android and iOS. So if you just download it on your phone, if you want to make your own edibles, and it's the most accurate 
calculator out there for people to figure out the potency of their homemade edibles. Now, did you create that algorithm on your own or did you work with somebody? Yeah, yeah. I created it on my own. I had it lab tested. TW Analytics in Oakland worked with me to make sure that it was as accurate as it could be. It's based on the percentage of THC that your flower has. So you have to know that. But then there's a lot of loss factors along the way that, as far as I know, no other calculator in the world takes all these loss factors into account. So what happened when you moved back to California? I'll tell you, I had a mission. As soon as I figured out how to make that light tasting can of butter and can of oil, and then I figured out dosing. I had a mission to make cooking with cannabis simple and easy for everyone. And how was I going to do that? And I feel like I was given the opportunity to create all the tools that I need to be able to do that. So the first thing out of the box was letting people know that this is something, light tasting can of butter, can of oil, how to make it. We did some videos on that. That was the first thing. The second thing we did was we got the cookbook. And the cookbook not only talks about the plants and talks about, you know, how do you see it as an ingredient in the different compounds within the plant and then why we do what we do to create a great tasting can of butter or can of oil, but also has the recipe for that light tasting can of butter and can of oil. But even more so, it goes several steps further where if you follow the recipe and you know the potency of your cannabis, every recipe will tell you the potency per serving of what you're creating. So you don't have to worry anymore about giving your guests or even yourself too much. You literally will know, okay, this is two and a half milligrams, this is five milligrams. And it also teaches you how to titrate it up or down. So if you want to do less, it teaches you how to make it less potent. If you want it more potent, it teaches you how to make it more potent. So that was the next thing that we did, you know, the cookbook. Again, all leading into that mission of making cooking with cannabis simple and easy for everyone. Then we came up with a calculator. And the calculator was a way to help people figure out how to accurately dose their edibles and to understand how to work with it. And I teach people now, you know, in addition, now that you have all these tools, how do you use them, right? So if you know how potent your can of butter or can of oil is, just because your stick of can of butter is, let's say, a thousand milligrams, you're not going to use the whole stick to make a batch of brownies unless you want to make really potent brownies. But if you, let's say, you use a quarter of a stick and it's 250 milligrams, and you fill the rest of your recipe with non-infused butter, now you've got the 250 milligrams, you divide that up, let's say, between 25 little brownies, and you've got 25 10-milligram brownies. Or if you want us to take it one step further and you want to, let's say, make wings, like my hazy Thai wings, how do you make sure that each wing is dosed, let's say, at one or one and a half milligrams a piece? Use an eyedropper. Well, how do you know how many milligrams are in each drop? Well, if you know how many milligrams are in a teaspoon, then you can multiply it out and you can figure out that there's 96 drops in a teaspoon and each drop is, let's say, a quarter of a milligram or whatnot. So it gives you the education. You understand exactly how potent your can of oil or can of butter is and then how to use it properly. And how much of your audience space are like consumers versus healthcare nurses and professionals that are working with and wellness, which is exactly where you started? I would say a few, not that many. Well, I still work with people who are ill. One of the things that I like to do is, you know, I don't charge when I, for somebody who's ill, I want them to have a really, to take what I'm able to give them and enjoy it. And maybe it'll help their quality of life a little bit. And I enjoy doing that. I think that people, if they're looking to enjoy cannabis infused edibles for wellness, there's a very different way that you would cook versus someone who just wants to get high on their edibles. And it's, you've also got to be really cognizant of what they can and can't eat. I mean, you know, certain patients that I cook for, they can't have any sugar. 
And if I'm making some of my sweeter recipes, how do you do that for them? You know, and there's different ways, obviously, you know, that we can substitute instead of sugar. Sometimes we can use brown rice syrup or we can use maple syrup or honey or depending on what their diet allows for. But as I got deeper into this, I started getting more into the nutrition of cooking for them, not just the infusion. So the infusion was the medicinal part that made them feel good. But if they're not tasting it, I better make sure the food that I'm making for them tastes really good and is made in a way that they can actually enjoy it. Well, and also the consistency. So we talk about consistency and like user experience, quality versus quantity. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, no, consistency is what it's all about. If you have a good recipe, it's all great. If you can make it once, but if you can't replicate it, then you're never going to have a good experience again. So consistency is really important. And consistency in dosing when it comes to edibles is even more important. You need to make sure that everything that you're doing is consistent. And I'm privileged now because I can send out all of my oils and butters for testing before I even use them. So even if my calculator says, let's say that my last Ajacana oil is 40 milligrams per teaspoon, I'm going to send it out to a lab to double check that. And it's usually pretty accurate. I would say within two or three points on either side. So if the calculator says 40 and the lab comes back with 37 or 42, that's still within the range. Consistent dosing is really important. Obviously, when you make food, there's usually consistency to it because you know what you're doing and you're used to making specific foods unless you're following a new recipe. But when it comes to dosing, consistency is really important because you want to make sure that you're not giving anybody, including yourself, too much or too little. So you want to make sure that your dosing is very accurate. So I have the ability and the luxury of having my oil and butter tested at the lab as well. And the lab test will come back usually within a point or two of the calculator. So I know the calculator is very accurate. So that's why I'm able to say, okay, if you're cooking at home, use my calculator to get an accurate read for, you know, how potent your cannabis-infused edibles are. But consistency is key. In 2019, Jeff decided it was time to take the learnings he'd received from trained chefs and launch a restaurant concept of his own. He got a license to open up the world's first cannabis edibles restaurant in West Hollywood. While he was still building out the space and fine-tuning his venue, he started hearing about something called coronavirus. He was forced to push back the opening, but the downtime gave him an opportunity to pursue another venture he had been thinking about. We were hoping to open April 20th, 2020. On March 19th, 2020, they came to us and said, hey, there's a virus going around, everything's gonna have to shut for a few months, You know, we'll let you know when you can start up again. It's now been about, I'm going to say, 16 months since then, 17 months since then. And we had a major, I'm going to say, pivot with our investors. They, we, we changed Things changed hands here and there. And uh, to make a long story short, the restaurant lounge that's playing at opening is probably not going to open, uh, at least not the way that I thought it was going to open. And right now, that's all in limbo. But part of what happened during COVID was that we were also told by the state right before this happened that we would not be able to sell pre-prepared infused foods that were prepared in the kitchen by the chef. The only thing that we could do was serve pre-packaged edibles that people could either eat or add to their food. So for example, if you were ordering a chocolate fondue, you could order an infused chocolate bar, 10 milligrams, 20 milligrams, whatever it is, mix it into your fondue at the table, you did it yourself as a guest, and therefore you'd be dosing yourself. They did not want us dosing the consumer or the guests. So I came up with something new. I had figured out that my culinary cannabis, the cannabis that I was uh, working with, didn't really have much of a flavor, but what if there was a way that I could flavor it 
and make it edible? And what if there was a way that I could flavor it and make it smokable, but without any additives, without adding any flavor to it? And I came up with a process that's now patent pending, also rooted in molecular gastronomy, where I'm removing all of the compounds responsible for the odor and taste of cannabis, leaving the trichomes intact along with the cellulose of the plants, and then making it so that without giving away the secret, I can make that cannabis taste and smell like anything I want. For example, oregano, basil, thyme, cloves, cinnamon, you name it, I can make it taste just like that without adding any, for example, oregano oil or without adding any crushed oregano into it. It's pure cannabis that tastes like oregano. And then we do the same thing now for hemp. So that's the big story is that now we have hemp flour, which is legal to sell around the world, especially since the 2018 farm bill. And that hemp flour is not infused with CBD. The hemp flour is inherently chock full of CBD. So it's really the only true hemp edible flour product that has CBD in it as part of it that tastes like something you're familiar with, like oregano. So we have no oregano, rosemary jane, buzzed basil, hazy thyme, cinnamon. <laughs> so we have, you know, on the edible side of it. And I took it one step in the other direction to make it smokable. And I can make it taste like, for example, clove cigarette. So it's like smoking a joint or a hemp stick. It'll taste like clove, but the uh, smoke that comes out from it has zero cannabis or zero hemp odor. So you've taken two of my favorite subjects, chemistry and astronomy. And you managed to apply them to cooking, which is, I mean, cooking is a science experience. But where are you going next? I mean, it's so amazing, your whole journey. Where are you taking the future of culinary cooking with cannabis? Is this international now? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you. Ultimately, my goal is to be the McCormick of cannabis and hemp, to have entire lines that are 100% hemp that taste like the most familiar spices, but give you a daily dose of CBD. You can sprinkle our no oregano on your pizza and get 12 milligrams of CBD with a little quarter of a teaspoon. It actually comes with it. So if you go to my website on jets420chef.com, we actually are selling the culinary hemp right now. And no oregano is the first one to come out. Rosemary Jane comes out next month. So we've got a bunch of different flavors of the herbs that will be coming out. On the cannabis side, we're licensing it. So we're licensing it out to companies all over the country in legal states for them to be able to manufacture the cannabis version, which would be chock full of THC. So you're leading an entirely new generation of the industry. How does that feel? Amazing. It really feels incredible. I'm teaching a lot of chefs now how to cook with cannabis. I love seeing all these young new chefs coming up and wanting to cook with cannabis and wanting to do it properly so their food shines. It's no longer just throwing a bunch of weed into a brownie mix and hoping for the best. It's really creating great edibles, great food, and starting with a nice, clean ingredient that doesn't taste like weed that you can use to infuse your food accurately and literally create some amazing meals out of it. Another one of my goals when I first started was to create a sub-industry within the cannabis industry. And that sub-industry for me is the culinary industry or the culinary and cannabis. And I really feel that bringing all these new people into it that really want to do it. Everybody today wants to be a cannabis chef, right? You look around, Chop 420 just had a bunch of episodes of cannabis chefs that were on 
just doing their thing. I actually got chopped. I can say now that it's out. I got chopped because they removed the flavor from the cannabis. They said, well, well, this is a cannabis show. And since you removed the flavor, you're being chopped. So I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> My whole thing was telling people that you don't have to taste the flower if you don't want to. You can literally have a great tasting infused meal that tastes like food, but you know it's infused with cannabis because you've been told it's infused with cannabis, but you don't taste it. Now, there is a time and place for the taste. Sometimes I will cook with it and you will taste it. For example, another popular dish that I make is my finished lasagna, which use spinach leaves and cannabis leaves, the family. I'll chop them up and I'll put them in lasagna. And that will add to obviously the flavor, but there's also THCA, a lot of THCA in these leaves and other cannabinoids that are very good for you. In addition to us adding like a nice dose of can of olive oil to it to infuse it. You're also changing the social stigma, which has been evolving already. Where does the industry go next? Is the industry going to follow you? Are you cracking it open? You know, I'll tell you. I think the industry is already starting to go in that direction. You've got some great products, like, for example, infused sugar by Sugis. Now we have sugar and spice. We have Sugis for sugar, and we have spice very freely, which is the name of our product. Or the, the uh, hemp version is called Scarborough Fair. So I feel that what's, hap- what's going to happen in the industry is that you're going to have products out there that you're more familiar with that you'll be able to use to infuse, whether it's THC or CBD. I think it'll be a lot more mainstream, obviously, on the CBD side. So putting CBD sugar into your coffee is something that I think would be a great thing to do. Sprinkling CBD no oregano on your pizza is another great way to get your CBD. But I feel like what's happening now is people are starting to accept the fact that hemp and cannabis are both medicinal herbs and they offer a lot of value and a lot of not only medicinal value, but also nutritional value. And if you can add CBD to your food just by throwing in some hemp flour that you can eat, that's probably the purest way to get it. You don't have to worry about concentrates and people putting it through a chemical process to extract and then put it into something else. No, you're literally just eating the hemp flour and getting the CBD. So it's about as pure as it can be. I feel that on that side of the equation, you'll have people specifically that are more health conscious. They're going to want to enjoy their CBD that way than taking a pill or having a gummy or vaping or inhaling it. You know, what you're doing is demographically just equalizing everything. So it doesn't make any difference if you're a baby boomer or if you're a newcomer or if you're a home chef or you're a professional chef, that you're the equalizer. Yeah, I'm trying to bring it into the mainstream more than anything else. You know, stoner culture has a bad rap. And people there are stoners, they're seen a very specific way. They always smoke weed. Then it's like, oh, okay, he's a stoner, right? Or you see somebody or you walk into someone smoking weed. It's like a lot of people have already a predetermined notion of what that person's like. Meanwhile, you'd be surprised that the most successful people in the world love cannabis. Elon Musk is just one of them. I think stoner culture is one of the things that may get a bad rap. But on the other side of it, there's soccer moms all day and all night that love cannabis. As a matter of fact, we were testing our odorless pre-rolls, right? You smoke them. We tested it with soccer moms. And they're going nuts over it. They love it. because It tasted like lavender or it tasted like clove or it tasted like mint. But when they blew out the smoke, nobody knew that they were smoking cannabis. Yeah. The cannabis tea and book parties replaced the Tupperware parties of the baby boomers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very true. Right. So what's next for you, Jeff? I want to get the spices out there as soon as I possibly can. One of the things that I'm also working on is bringing cannabis chefs from all over into the fold. Getting those cannabis chefs to, whether they're living in Indiana, for example, which is not really a legal state, or, you know, and they want to be able to cook with cannabis legally, bring them to California to do a pop-up if they're really good. 
teach them how to do it so that when they're cooking for a bunch of people at an event, they're not just saying, oh, this is going to be 50 milligrams or 75 or 100 milligrams, but literally teaching them how to dose individually. I would love to be part of that, helping the next generation open up the restaurants and do it properly. I think that too many cannabis chefs out there say they're cannabis chefs, but they don't know what they're doing when it comes to dosing properly, when it comes to, you know, I mean, a lot of people are trying to work with the taste and that's a great thing to be able to do. I work with the taste as well in certain aspects, but not all the time. A true cannabis chef will know when and when not to use the cannabis and use the taste of cannabis. I think you are the missing ingredient for the industry as well as just, you know, for the great recipes. One last question I have to ask, what is your favorite spice of all the things that you've created? My favorite spice? I like them all. I create things that I love, right? And I use them all. Like I'll use my oregano on my pizza and also in my pasta sauces. One of the, my, my favorite things is to make Rosemary Jane roasted potatoes. So it's like, you know, Rosemary pan roasted potatoes. This is Rosemary Jane pan roasted potatoes that are just, you know, amazing. I love putting my cinnamon on the oatmeal, on my oatmeal every morning where I can wake and bake. So I like them all. I don't do things that I don't like. My whole culinary point of view is if I've tasted something and I like it, I'm going to remake it with cannabis. And if we look at the next 25 years, does this, this become the standard? Yeah, I'm hoping the next 25 years you'll have an entire shelf of uh, Scarborough Fair culinary hemp in the supermarket and the culinary cannabis will be available again. You have a whole shelf of culinary cannabis products that you'll be able to cook with and available in dispensaries all over the country and hopefully all over the world. That was Jeff Dancer, the 420 chef. Initially, Jeff worried about the implications of putting his real name on his business. In fact, he says the 420 Chef was originally a way for him to hide in plain sight. But once the business started taking off, he realized there was no reason to hide who he was or what he was doing. Today, he says he's honored that the name Jeff Dancer has become synonymous with the culinary cannabis revolution that he started. And he's even picked up another nickname, the Julia Child of Cannabis. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood, and all episodes are written and developed by Jack Buer. Our show coordinator is Deanna Morency, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab. <laughs>